And so today we're doing a sermon titled First Corinthians or the Church, and this is really the church part two, uh, from these passages of scripture found in First Corinthians chapter one, verses one through three. And I would encourage you, if you were not here last Sunday, to go back and to listen to that sermon, uh, especially if you're planning on being with us. It's, if you came here today, this isn't like one of those situations where you'll be lost. Um, I'll try to clue you into a few things, but uh, this is part two of that sermon. And in doing so, we'd encourage you to go back and to listen uh, to that sermon, especially if you weren't here um, or if you are considering becoming a ministry partner here, a member here at Mission Church. Uh, there's just a lot of useful information about uh, the church, uh, what it is, uh, the value and importance of being a part of the church according to God's word. And so with that, let's jump right in here to see what the Lord says uh, to us today through his word once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes is actually how you say that to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. This year, we've titled this series through the book or the letter of 1 Corinthians, Fight the Drift. And the reason why we've titled this that is because of our natural propensity to drift toward things that are unholy, that are not godly, that are not Christ-like. Uh, that we are prone to wonder toward um, uh, unbiblical understandings, unbiblical beliefs. And we can see that even within the life of the so-called American church. That we have really drifted away from what does it mean to be a biblical church. Now, let's, let's all understand this. When a church says that they're an Acts 2 church, uh, that's impossible. They, they can't be an Acts 2 church because we're not living in the time of Acts chapter 2. However, the principles and the practices, as we see a lot of descriptions in the Bible, we also see prescriptions in the Bible of how we are to relate to Christ and how we are to relate to each other as members within a local church. And yet we're prone to claim to be followers of Jesus claim to have a relationship with Jesus, and yet have a distant relationship with the church. And to understand who Jesus is, and to love Jesus, then one must love the church, both the global and the local body. Those two must go together like a relationship of a husband and wife, but even more so, that if you love a husband or if you love a, a wife, you, you need to love them both. 
Um, they cannot be separated. They are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. And this relationship is extremely important. If you're calling yourself and claiming to be a follower of Jesus, then that means that Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And as we saw last week, is that Jesus loves the church and he shed his blood for her. So, if you're going to love Jesus then please love the local church. It's important. It cannot be separated. It's, it's impossible to not love one or to love one and not love the other. Jesus calls us in a culture that is drifting toward wanting us to cancel church. And I'm not talking about because of snow or COVID or, or those sorts of things. But to cancel church, meaning we want to see it removed from literally the face of the earth. We want to, in a, a, a culture of cancel culture, is that there are many people in the world who hate Jesus and hate the church. It, and simply want to see uh, this organism called the church to be removed from the face of the earth. We have other in this cultural time and place where, where people want it to be a really cultural sort of experience. That there isn't much distinction between what's happening in the world and what's happening amongst God's people. Or people would claim to be God's people. Another type of person that we see is a person who would claim to be a follower of Jesus, but when it really comes to church, is that they just want to be a consumer of church and consumer of church things. So you want your kids to be good, so you want them to go to a children's ministry, or you want your teenager to straighten up. Literally, I had a parent one time, early years of youth ministry and pastoring, I was a youth pastor for five years, and I, I literally remember like a mama bringing her kid to me, uh, her teenage son, and pretty much saying, fix my child, right? Well, that's, that's consumerism. I want a certain type of music. As soon as you add the terminology, I want my church to have blank, and it's something that we see outside of Scripture, even if it's not something that's necessarily bad. Uh, youth ministry can be a great thing, but it's not God. And we don't have any kind of descriptions or prescriptions of it even seen inside of the scripture. But what we do have is the local church and the global church. We, we have the church. And yet there are many people with inside of America because we're driven by as a consumer type of persons is that we want the church to reflect that. And we're going to find a church that provides the most opportunity for us, even if in many cases it's an unbiblical place and gathering of people. And yet contrary to those things, what do we see from Christ? He calls us to commit it calls us to commit to a local church. And by committing to a local church, we are in good faith and in trusting that likewise, we are a part of the global church and the global understanding. The church in a local sense is, is very much a Christ-centered community that is, is, is of true believers who gather for worship, disciple each other, experience life together, and then what do we do? We scatter in order to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So last week, when we looked at this passage, we talked some more, and even our first sermon in this series from Acts chapter 18, is that we looked at this guy who he was named Paul, who ends up planting this church in this crazy, immoral city called Corinth. 
And as we talked about last week, we saw specifically focusing on really the first clause or section inside of verse 2, which it says to the church of God that is in Corinth. And we talked all last week about the local church. And what does it mean to be a part of the local church? Like this is a local church. This isn't the mission church that is in South Africa this morning. This is mission church of Bowling Green or in Bowling Green. And so the value and importance of the local body of believers is extremely important inside the scripture. The scripture simply assumes that if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, that you will belong to a local church. is an astronomical uh, truth that is embedded time and time again in Scripture over and over and over and over and over again that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, that you're going to belong to a local body of believers. And all of those local bodies make up the global church. Now, we see inside of this passage, if we focus some more, um, again, if you're looking at your scripture there, it says to the church of God that is in Corinth, and we're going to focus a lot today on these other portions that we see inside of chapter or verse 2. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at these passages, what, what happens is, is that throughout the history of Christianity, and because we have so drifted from biblical understandings and also from our very own history, some of this is going to sound very like new. Where did you get this? Maybe you grew up going to church your entire life, and yet you've never heard some of the points that I'm going to be referencing today. But I, I promise you, and I can, I can give you the things to read and to point you to, that this has been historical for hundreds, thousands of years within the history of the church to talk about the church in regards to these markers. And in 1 Corinthians, in this very first chapter, is important for us to understand that. All right. If you've not read ahead or if you've never read the book of Corinthians, uh, here in about two weeks, it is going to go crazy in this place. All right. As we read through 1 Corinthians, this church is absolutely gone crazy. All right? And so Paul is writing them, and in the introduction is again reminding them of who Jesus is. And if who Jesus is, then who his church is, because we're going to see as this sermon series develops that, that they have lost, they have gone wayward. They have drifted away from what it means to be a biblical church, and this church is only a couple of years old by the time that we get this letter written. All right? So we're still in the, the, the prequel, we're still in the writing here, or the, the, the understanding, the building up to why is Paul going to address all of these things. So if you're taking notes here today, I've gone ahead and put them on a slide for you. These are the historical marks for a church. It's one, it's holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. 
All right? So those are the points that we're going to cover, the marks that we're going to cover of what it means to be a part of a biblical church. These aren't necessarily all of the marks, but these are the historical confessions of the church that we believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. All right? So let's look at the first one. When the Bible says that we are one, that the church is one, what is it speaking to? As I mentioned last week, in this very first passage here, in verse 2, what does it say? To the church of God. It's talking about an understanding that the church belongs to God. That there is one church, and that church belongs to Him. The church is owned, not by Pastor Eric, not by you, that the church is owned and belongs to God. Not your favorite celebrity pastor, not your favorite Christian book author, but the possession of belongs to is in the wealth, the knowledge, the understanding, and the account of God and Him alone. It is His bride, it is His church. He owns us, we are the owned ones. There is only one true church. And because, how or why, is there only one true church? And that is because there is only one God. There is not many gods and goddesses in the world. All of those are counterfeits. That The scripture from Genesis to Revelation points to the understanding, no, there is only one God. There is only one great I Am. And it is the God of the Bible. So all other religions are following after false, counterfeit versions of the God of the Bible. And since there is only one God, then there can only be one true understanding, globally speaking, of the church. Even if they meet across the street from each other in the same town, they're ultimately on the same team. Their goal should be the same. Their mission should be the same. Their affections should be stirred for the same being, the same God-man. His name is Jesus. There is one God, and so the church has been known as one church, though it gathers in a plethora of different areas all over the globe. When we talk about oneness, because there is one God and there is one church, then historically speaking, when the church has been described as one, it is speaking to the mark of God's true desire, understanding for there to be unity within the body. Why? Because it's a reflection of the perfect union that is seen in what we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That they're in perfect relationship with each other. That they have perfect unity with each other. And so the oneness of the church is a reflection of that kind of unity. So when the church begins to experience divisions like what we see in Corinth and maybe like what you've seen in your own church experience, um, this is not something that should be taken lightly at all. This is a very serious thing when churches begin to divide. It is serious to God. 
It is serious to our gospel witness, and it should be serious to us. And yet, what is the enemy pressed on and against? The unity of both local churches, but then also, like, I mean, if you guys go to Hopkinsville, anybody ever gone to Hopkinsville? The great thing about going to Hopkinsville, it's on the way to Kentucky Lake. I don't know any other reason to stop by there, okay? In Hopkinsville, because I always snicker about this, there is the First Baptist Church. And you guys know why we call churches, especially Southern Baptist churches, First Baptist Church? Do you, does anybody actually know why? Well, it's the first Southern Baptist Church to be planted in that city. That's how they get that name, First Baptist Church. In Hopkinsville, if you go down the road a little bit further, though, there's also Second Baptist Church. All right? Well, why? Well, probably something happened in their history that caused them to divide and then to make two First and Second Baptists, not to be outdone. All right? Let's not get creative with our names. All right? Now, the thing is, they're a part of the same team. If there truly are believers in those churches, then they are ultimately a part of this, again, global church, and yet it does not negate the importance and the value and the biblical mandate for you tonight to belong to a local body of believers. But it is speaking to this idea, though, because even Jesus is going to know that the enemy wants us to split. He wants us to divide. And again, we're going to jump into to more of those divisions here in a few weeks because it's taking place inside this, this church that is in Corinth. But Jesus is so concerned about the unity of Christians and the church that on the night before that he's to be crucified, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And, and the Bible says that he begins to pray so fervently and seek God and being squashed under the wrath of God in that moment that his, 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 his sweat became like great drops of blood. I mean, this is a guy who is being completely just dispensed of everything that he is. And while he is praying, if you read inside the Gospel of John, there's this whole several sections there where we get to peer into the conversation that Jesus is having with God. And in that priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus says these words to God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus, in his priestly prayer, what's he praying for? For the unity of Christians. Now, if you want to be discouraged really quickly, look at Christian Twitter and you'll quickly see that that is something that we continually need to be praying for. It's not that there's not room for critique. And there is also a place and time for calling out false Christians and false churches. Because again, what are we all prone to do? 
is to drift away from a biblical understanding. It's to drift away from the person and work of Jesus. But Jesus knows that this is going to be a struggle. And he's praying before he's going to be even crucified on the cross. He's praying for the unity of Christians, for the unity of the church. Even Jesus or Paul would say later, uh, speaking of Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 4, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope and that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God. There is one church. And so we seek unity even in the midst of our diversity. If we're going to divide, and there are cases that there needs to be division, but those should be over biblical understandings and truths, not just out of certain whims or personal preferences. So the first thing that we see in, inside of this, this understanding, again, is that there is the church of God, the local church that is in Corinth. But what do we see in this passage? There are also called to be saints together all over those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. Right? Do you see this? It's both local and global. My professor in, in my doctoral work would say this is a global understanding. That we need to have a bigger global understanding. That yes, we, we are concerned uh, about local matters. And yet as followers of Jesus, we need to be concerned about global matters. Which I'll get to more into in just a second. The second point that we see here is that the church is called to be a holy place. A holy gathering. A holy church. Notice here, we see this inside this passage. In verse 2 again. Paul says to the church of God that is in court to those what underline circle box it sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. So we see two holy words in that very passage. The first one that we see is the word sanctified. The second one that we see is the word holy. Now the word holy inside the excuse me sanctified saints. Of the two words. But when we look at the word holy inside of the scripture, the word holy inside the Bible paints two kind of pictures. The first understanding that we see is that when the word holy is mentioned, it's talking about distinction, other, different, set apart. That's why we say of God that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible, when it translates or, or when it repeats itself, it's talking about, it's putting a lot of focus on the holiness of God. You never look at someone in this room and go, they are holy, 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 right? I mean, that'd be really strange for you to do that. But we do say that of God, and it is on purpose. It's to say that He is distinct, 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 that He is set apart, set apart, set apart. That He is God, He is not like us. And the Bible would even tell us that one of our biggest struggles is when we try to mind make God to be like us, and yet He is not. He is distinct. He is God. He is holy. The other way that the word holy is used is in reference to uh, the idea or the practice in, in reference to purity. We see both of these ideas, if you remember back um, early this time last year when we were going through the book of Exodus, we talked about Moses and the burning bush. And, and God comes down, I believe Jesus, in the form of this 
burning bush is talking to Moses, God's prophet, God's man, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And in doing so, it goes on top of a mountain. This bush is on fire, yet it is not being consumed. And, and as Moses steps closer to the bush, you remember, what does God say? He tells Moses to take off his sandals and, and to remove them. Why? Because he is standing on holy ground. Well, what makes the ground holy? Well, it's Moses, right? No. The ground wasn't holy because of Moses. The ground was holy because of God. It was set apart. There was something happening. I mean, there's a burning bush on top of this mountain. There's something very distinct about this. There's something very set apart about this moment. And what is it? It is the presence of God resting in this place. He tells Moses to take off his sandals because his sandals, Moses is a shepherd. He's covered in dust and, and animal matters and all these sorts of things. And so Moses, he's, he's symbolically showing Moses and showing us that we are bringing the impurities for it to be holy it's got to be pure he doesn't want Moses to step any closer because he knows that Moses will dirty it up so we see this idea of holiness inside the Bible. Again, to be distinct, other, uh, reference to, in a reference to purity. Um, and so when we see this idea of holiness inside the church, we, we see that the church itself, the word in the Greek, as we talked about last week, is ekklesia. It's the gathering of what? The called out ones. That's the definition. What is it saying? That the church or those people who have truly experienced salvation in Jesus, that they are the called out, set apart ones, that they are the holy ones. Not because we in and of ourselves are holy, but because we have one God and that God is holy. He is holy. Now, I know right now you're already saying this is really confusing because the church doesn't appear to be very one and it doesn't appear to be very holy. I mean, I hang out with Christians all the time. I work with Christians. They say the same words. We talk about the same parties. We're doing the same things in our relationships. Our marriages sound the same. So I don't understand this, preacher, what you're talking about, about oneness and that you're supposed to be holy because all the church people I know are just like me. And you know what? They're probably right. But you need to get this. There is, and this is going to be confusing for some of you, so I'm going to try to help even myself you need to understand this friends is that in the world there is the visible church all right everybody look around everybody my eyesight's gotten really bad so i can barely see any of you but i think that there are human beings out here all right i don't, all i see literally is just blobs of color all right and so i see what i believe to be human beings out here in this room this is visible all right. You drive down the road, there's a church building. Uh, you, you work with somebody again in, in the cubicle next to you, and they're like, I'm, I'm a Christian, right? And those are, that's the visible church. The visible church is seen throughout the world, right? It's talked about on the news, all these sorts of things. However, within the visible church, there is what is known as the invisible church. And that is the real church. There's the visible. It's what everybody sees. 
But within that church or those churches, there is the invisible church, which is the real church. It's talked about within the scriptures being the remnant of God. Paul would talk about this in the book of Romans, right? When he would say that not everybody who is from Abraham is actually an Israelite. And that's really confusing to us, right? Because all the descendants of Abraham are considered to be a part of the nation of Israel. But, but Paul would say, the scripture would say, but, but just because they're from this nationality or this race doesn't mean that they're a part of the real and true Israel. And likewise, it is true of the church, that there is a remnant, that there is a true believing people, right? Because churches, you got to get this, not every church, again, as we talked about last week, not every church that says that they're a church is a church, and not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Those are all visible. They can easily say that. They can voice that with their mouth, but it doesn't mean that what they're professing with their mouth or with their church sign is actually a possession of their hearts. I can give you another biblical example to try to help you see this. All right? There are 12 disciples, right? They got to experience, walk with, live with who? Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, those 12 men went with him. When he ate, they ate. When he slept, usually they were trying to, you know, not die on a boat. <laughs> But one of them wasn't a part, really. Visibly, Judas got to do everything, right? Judas was a part of the twelve, but he really wasn't a part. Does that make sense? Because he wasn't a Christian. He could be seen. He was the one preaching. He could proclaim uh, that Jesus is Lord. He, he, he hung out with these disciples all the time. He was in the upper room. I mean, he saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He was visible in all of those things, but his heart had ultimately not been changed. What we cannot see, which is the invisible condition of a person's heart, what can God see? He knows everything about you. And likewise, the church is both visible and invisible. That God knows who's really a part of his family and who's, who isn't. I mean, we call Satan the deceiver. Right? Have you ever seen a counterfeit bill? Like, you know the difference between monopoly money and a real dollar. Right? And even if a good counterfeit ended up being like blue or purple, you'd be able to say, man, that, that's, that's obviously a counterfeit. If I'm Satan, then what I'm going to do, I'm going to be really good at counterfeiting things. I'm the deceiver. I'm not going to make it just a one-off. Right? It's going to be very hard. It would be impossible for you and I, really, um, we do our very best, and the Lord even tells us to judge people by their fruit. That's part of the reasons why we belong to a church, is the, the affirmation from the best that we can tell, this person, this brother, this sister is a passionate follower of Jesus, and because of that, we welcome them into membership into this local church. But if I'm the great deceiver, I'm not going to make it very obvious. 
You can go through all the Christian stuff that you want to. And yet God truly knows our hearts. And He calls us here to what? He uses again these two holy terms, sanctified and saints. Sanctified. When Jesus saves people, He sanctifies them. And He continues to sanctify them until He returns. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, go figure. It means to be set apart. Set apart from what? You're set apart from the profane. When Jesus saves you, you can... uh, In and of yourself, you are always going to be bent towards sin, Satan, and death. It is impossible unless Jesus intercedes himself upon you and arrests your heart. You would never choose him on your own fruition. And yet, in the changing of your heart, as Jesus saves you, what does he do? He sets you apart from the unholy. You are always bent toward, prone towards sin. And yet, in the salvific process of Jesus actually saving your heart, He sanctifies you. He sets you apart. And so what you could not do in Christ, you and I can now do. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart from unholy, sinful things in order to pursue holy things in Jesus And Paul tells us that. He's writing to the real church. Not just the people who attend, but the real church. Those who are really saved within that gathering of people. Jesus has sanctified them. The next part that we see is that he calls them saints. Who are the saints? The saints are those whom Jesus has Saved, He will sanctify, and those whom He has sanctified, He calls saints. Now, this is very different from our friends who are uh, Catholic, and I'm going to explain why Catholic is on our board here in just a second. If you're Roman Catholic, their understanding of saints is very different than what the Scripture is talking about here. These aren't super Christians, but everybody in here right now, If you've been saved by Jesus, then you are a saint. You are the set-apart ones. How are you set apart? The world is going to hell. That's what it desires. That's what it wants. Jesus should allow you and I to continue in that process. But in his rich mercy and his grace has chosen us out of that. He has set us apart from that situation and from that end but again more questions here because I know you and you know me is that this holiness seems really imperfect and to a degree you're right positionally from God's perspective you and I are as holy as we're going to be why because of Jesus Jesus is perfectly holy when he died on the cross, when your faith and trust has been placed in Christ as your substitutionary atonement, and meaning that he died in your place, then his holiness was transferred to your account. And yet, practically, you and I are, 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 are not holy. Anybody sin this week? Anybody want to tell us? <laughs> awesome. All right. We, 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 we struggled this week, right? 
But the thing is, here's the, here's the deal. For those of us who are in Christ, positionally, we are holy. You're as holy as you're ever going to be. You're as set apart as you're ever going to be. And yet, experientially, as we live on this planet, Jesus is simultaneously still setting you apart, still molding you. And so for those of us who are in Christ, our desire is, is to seek a progress in what it means to be like Christ. So he's still working all of those things. The church and its members should be and live distinctly in the world. That's why he says here, he says, it, the church belongs to God. It's a local church. And yet simultaneously, this church is called to be holy. It's called to be set apart. It is called to be distinct. You and I and Mission Church should live differently than our culture and our world. And it should be palatable when we are in the room. There is something different about these people. And is it goodness that you dwelled or you were able to create on your own? No, friends. It is the goodness of Christ. It is not a place of arrogance if someone sees us differently. It is not a place of arrogance for us, but rather it's a place of great humility. Because the only difference between you and I is Jesus The only difference between you and the worst sinner imaginable is Jesus. We are to reflect his holiness. And yet, uh, in many cases within the church, in America specifically, the church has become very reflective of everything that we see in the world. We try to mimic it constantly. Again, we, we live like many people within the church. You can't really tell any difference between a person, many people within American Christianity who claim to be followers of Jesus. You can't tell much difference from them and the rest of what's happening in the culture. And yet Paul is writing to a people, those sanctified in Christ and called to be saints, the set-apart ones, Likewise, we should be as well. The next thing that we see here on our list is the word Catholic. If you noticed a few weeks ago, we quoted from the Apostles' Creed. It's also inside of what's known as the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And if you're, again... No shame if you're unfamiliar with this, but a lot of times when you quote on those days, people who did not grow up or it's not been a part of their church culture to, to quote the creeds, when they see the word Catholic there inside of a Protestant church, their tendency is to go, now, 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 wait a minute. When you're talking about we believe Jesus died and was resurrected, buried, and resurrected, amen, yes, hallelujah, come on back, Jesus. But, but what, are you, preacher, do you know? Did you make a mistake? You know that Catholic people. Okay, so quick semantics word lesson here, okay? Is the word Catholic, when it's lowercase historically, there's not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. All right? Uh, the lowercase Catholic means universal. 
It means worldwide. It does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. That's why even in Protestant churches, a lot of them, when they've come to reciting of the creeds, have actually changed and taken out the word Catholic to put the word universal, but it actually means the exact same thing. Alright? So when you see or you're reading lowercase Catholic, that means the word universal. It means worldwide. It does not mean that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody got me? Alright. So that's why we say we believe and agree with the historical creeds of the Christian church. We believe in one holy Catholic universal church. Okay? Worldwide church. That you are a part of something that is not just the South. You're not just something that's a part of something that's in Bowling Green, Kentucky. But throughout the world today, local churches who are an extension of us and we an extension of them because there is one holy universal church that we're a part of. I mean, think about that just for a moment. That you have brothers and sisters that you're going to spend all of eternity with that gathered from big, huge cathedrals and mega churches to people who did not have a building at all today. Maybe there was even one person in the entire village that was able to read the Word. Maybe they only had one Bible. And right now, I mean, you have an infinite amount of Bibles on your very iPhone. And yet maybe there is only one person in this localized village that has, can actually read and has a copy of some sort of language that they understand. And they sang maybe made-up songs. They don't even know Amazing Grace. And yet they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. When we say that we believe in one holy universal church, that's what we're agreeing to. That it's not just about mission church. One day the name and the place of mission church and the people of mission church will pass away, brothers and sisters. Every church has a shelf life. Every local church has a shelf life. And yet, what continues on? The church of God. The church of God will continue to go forth. Because we have one God. Now I want us to understand something. Man, it is okay for you and I to be pro-America. However, it is not for appropriate for us as followers of Jesus... To, to place our American patriotism over a biblical understanding of the universal global church. As you've heard, many of you have heard me say this before, but we have a greater citizenship than that of America, and that is to the kingdom of God. We have a greater constitution than our American Constitution and it is the Bible itself. The Bible would call us to transcend all of those sorts of understandings. That we would care for our brothers and sisters in Christ in foreign lands more than we would just simply care for what's taking place inside of America. Inside of the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 27 through 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not saying don't appreciate those things. It's not saying that, that you know, there is no such as gender anymore. But what it's saying is, as Paul is saying inside of Galatians, that the gospel it can transform the hearts and minds and lives of every race that is on the planet. We, we have a very white understanding of heaven, don't we? Like there's going to be home interior hanging on the walls in heaven. And if you know what home interior are, you're old and you're probably from the south, all right? Uh, it was a catalog. Your mama could buy stuff for her house. So like everybody had the same picture of Jesus. Everybody remember the same picture of Jesus? White Jesus hanging on your wall at everybody's house in the 80s. All right. We have a very white understanding, but most of the world is not white. Heaven is going to be a, a just rainbow of colors and white would be the minority in that. Understanding that we are Catholic, universal, not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church and Protestant Christianity is not the same thing. But understanding that we are a part of the universal church opens our hearts and minds to, to not just the internationals that are across the pond, but the internationals that are living here in Bowling Green. Especially the internationals in Bowling Green who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That there is this connection there. If we are both in Jesus, then what is there? There is oneness. Meaning what? There is unity there. Again, you've heard me say this, but some of you guys are new. Uh, you have more in common, friend, brother, sister. You have more in common with the believer in Afghanistan than the non-believing biological brother and sister. Why? Who is your head? Jesus. Jesus is not the head of a non-believing person. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And we sang a new song, Worthy are you who take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Brothers and sisters, we, we must care for and be concerned with and partner with not just people from our own nation, but we must be concerned. This week, some of us have a friend. I'm not going to mention their name just for, for safety reasons. We um, have a, a friend, a national friend, who lives in a foreign country. And uh, he contacted Pastor Todd this week to tell him, hey, in case you see this in the news, um, my village that I live in was attacked. But we are safe. Is what he said over and over. But we are safe. When you flip on the BBC, because we don't hear too much about this in America, but when you can flip on international news and you hear about Christians being killed, man, let us feel that. Let us feel that. That 
To be universal is to have connections and partners with people all over the world, your brothers and sisters in Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in hope that the gospel would continue to be spread. And that the one another's can be transferable. That's why we have partnerships with people. That's why, you know, I love my tribe of friend. He's a partner here at Mission. Him and his wife, Parker, they, they live with their kids in Niger, Africa. We talk a lot about Parker and their ministry there. Um, and uh, I, I love this statement from, from Mark. And some of us have seen this because we've been in Niger. But Mark once said this. This is a picture of a church in Niger, Africa. And he said this, if what you think must happen in order to be a church cannot happen in this building, you might need to rethink your definition of church. Some of us know what that's like. Some of us know what it's like. We have personal connections to people. And I mean, our heart and prayer through the missions ministry here at Mission Church is that all of us, again, whether that's um, your, your concern for your Afghan neighbors who live in Bowling Green, and yet simultaneously, we're also going to be connected to people in the world because specifically people in the world who are followers of Jesus. Why? Because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're a part of one body. We have so much in common. We're unified with them. And these brothers and sisters, many of them have walked miles and miles and miles. I think of a man named Ibrahim who, who his feet are just completely calloused over. And, and when Todd and myself and Brian Lewis were there doing ministry, we were in this village. We're just a few miles away. We didn't tell our families this until we got back. But just a few miles away after Mark had gotten us out there had told us that just recently there have been terrorist activity. We're surrounded in this small little hut that is about the size of about six chairs here. There's probably 20 men that are piled into this in the middle of the summer in African heat. There's all kinds of aromas that are pleasant to the Lord, but not pleasant to this dude. In this room... And all they want us to do from sunup to sundown is to teach them the word of God. And many of them have literally come from miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, days worth of travel to get to this shack that they call a church building so that they can have church with their brothers from America. Why? Because the Word of God meant that much to them. The gathering of the church meant that much to them. I don't say that to you to shame you. I, shame, I, I, I say that to us this morning to remind us of the, the meaning of what does it mean to be the church. It is not about programs, and yet they can be helpful. They can be great tools. But that's not what church is. It's a ministry of the church. Again, great value. But it's not God. It's not Jesus. And it is not ultimately the main goal and driver. Alright, last. i got to speed up. Apostolic. I covered a little bit of this last week. Inside the New Testament, Jesus calls certain disciples to be apostles. These were... Uh, in, in the New Testament case, they were, they were men whom Jesus had saved. 
And he gave them a specific ministry of sending them out from his very lips to go spread the gospel. When those apostles died, the letter capital A, apostle, died with it. Why? Because Jesus has not come to me personally, showed up and called you and I to do this like tangibly right here. He does that through his word, but he's not shown up. All right. These men saw Jesus with their own eyes. Many of them eyewitnesses of the counts of Jesus and the other ones called by Jesus himself in the physical form to go and do this. All right. So if you hear again, I mentioned this last week, if you hear people talking about they're a new apostle, please turn the channel. Do not buy their books. Do not send them money. There are no more new apostles on the planet. It is biblically impossible for them to be such. All right? So stop it. And I know right now you're like, oh, I'd never do that. But people do it every day. Danger. However... When we say that we believe in one holy, universal, apostolic church, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the ministry of these men. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, these men were were then to go into write and experience what we have known as the New Testament. When we say that we're apostolic, we're actually talking about the very Word of God. The very word of God that we believe in the ministry of these apostles as they proclaim the word of God and what was true for them is still true for us in 2022. This word was passed down from generation to generation to generation and we had that very word from these apostles of Jesus in our hands. We call that the Bible. It is our standard of truth. For, for us to be a church means that we are the pillar and the foundation of truth and if we remove the Bible from that then we're no longer that buttress of truth. That we're going to be a, a church, a gathering of people that believe strongly and are under the authority of Jesus and His Word. As we often say here at Mission, we don't, we don't expect people to always agree. But if we're going to disagree, let us make sure that we disagree with our Bibles open. Why? Because what we agree on, that this is the authority. We believe it to be true. From Genesis to Revelation, we believe that it is the very breathed out words of God. That it is pointing towards Jesus himself. That every page is pointing to the person and work of Jesus. And that if we're going to be a church, then we must press and fight against the drift to be biblically illiterate and press toward the word. Even Leviticus. Sorry, little preacher joke. If you've ever tried to read Leviticus, it gets real tough. Numbers can get real tough talking about census and the counting of people over and over and over and over. And yet Jesus would say that every dot and tittle, essentially every comma, every period, every capital letter, every sentence, every phrase was for the building up of the church, for the encouragement of God's people. Brothers and sisters, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus in this place, then please, I, I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
that we commit even more to the local church and that we commit to his word. Is this the love letter of your life? That in every opportunity and every day that we spend in this word, and I know that some days they're easy to do, and then there are days where, man, it's, it's, it is tough. Laundry list, got all these other things to do. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is nothing more important than for you and I to engage in this world, in this word, not the world, in the very word of Christ. Why? So we become really smart. No. So that you and I can see how big and how great our Jesus really is. We believe in one holy, catholic, apostolic church. A church that is unified. A church that is set apart. A church that is universal worldwide. And a church that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus and the foundation of the prophets and the apostles who did what? Proclaim the word of God. In Jesus' last prayer that I read earlier, what did he pray? That they would believe the ministry of the word of these men. And you and I in 2022 are doing what? For those of us in Christ are believing upon those very words. Even today. Let's pray.